Hello and welcome back to the Herbert Smith Freehills Tax Podcast. My name is Toby Eggleston, a partner in the Melbourne office, and joining me today is Professor Graham Cooper. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm well, Toby. I hope you're well too. I am indeed. So today we are going to talk about the consultation paper that the new Australian government has released in relation to its election commitments, covering off multinational tax integrity and enhanced tax transparency, which was released on the 5th of August and submissions closes on the 2nd of September, so may have already closed by the time this is published. The paper addresses a couple of the key tax policies proposed by the ALP during the election campaign. The first one was changing the safe harbour in Australia's thin capitalisation rules from a test based on the ratio of debt to the group assets to a test which is based on a percentage of EBITDA that is designed to more closely align with the 2015 OECD recommendations. The second policy is to introduce a new rule to deny a deduction to multinational enterprises for payments relating to intangibles where the recipient is not subject to sufficient foreign tax. There are two proposals dealing with tax transparency. One is increasing the quantity and level of detail of information about tax matters to be made available to the public and also requiring directors to report material tax risks to their shareholders. And finally, requiring tenderers for contracts valued at $200,000 to be awarded by the Commonwealth Government to disclose their country of residence. So today we're going to focus on the first two matters. That's the proposed changes to the thin capitalisation rules and the introduction of a denial of a deduction for a royalty payment. Graham, do you want to give a little background as to the evolution of these two matters and, and the paper in general? Sure, Toby. For a long time, Australia managed to live quite successfully without a legislated thin capitalisation rule. In fact, we only enacted thin cap rules in the legislation in 1987. Until then, foreign investment into Australia was regulated largely by foreign exchange controls uh, and other regulatory rules. But 1987, we said, okay, we need to formalise this. Uh, And so we came up with a model which was based on the balance sheet. Not an unusual model. We just picked what Canada had done and what the UK kind of notionally applied when they were doing their thin cap, which they had always seen as a transfer pricing issue rather than a capital structure issue. Anyway, 87, we come up with a test based on the balance sheet and we look at the ratio of the company's debt to equity. And we settled on three to one for most businesses or 20 to one if you were a financial institution. And that system stayed in place for more than a decade until 2001 when we decided we didn't like measuring the ratio of debt to equity, what we were going to do was change to the ratio of debt to assets. And that measure, if you just think about the mechanics of a balance sheet, worked out to be the same test. We were just defining different things. We weren't trying to define equity. We were trying to define assets. That measure stayed in place again for about a decade uh, until 2014, when the government decided that three to one was a bit too generous. So we were going to go with three to two. You could have $3 of debt for every $5 of assets. Skip forward to 2015 and the OECD comes up with their BEPS action report, which is in relation to the treatment of interest expense. 
the recommendations in all of the BEPS reports were classified into this is a minimum standard. Everybody's got to do this if you're an OECD member, if you are participating in the BEPS project. And then there were common approaches and other kind of lesser proposals that had less robust enforcement or less robust stringency. And this was one of those. So BEPS Action 4 was, here is something called a common approach. It wasn't a recommendation. It was just, here's what other folks do. Other folks seem to do this in a particular way. Maybe it would be nice if everybody played the game by the same rules. We're not mandating it. It's not our minimum standard. It's just a common approach. And the common approach said, forget about using the balance sheet, just use the income statement. The Americans had done this for a long time. And so the BEPS Action 4 report just aped what the Americans did and said, okay, we will have limit on interest, which is a function of gross revenue with some adjustment. And the Treasury paper says, oh, this is a direct way of measuring what's an appropriate amount of interest. So do it by looking at interest to revenue rather than debt to equity or debt to assets. At the time when the BEPS Action 4 report comes out, Scott Morrison was treasurer. He says, yeah, we've looked at that. We don't think we need to change what we currently do. It's good enough. It matches a 30% interest to EBITDA test if we continue to use a balance sheet test. And I don't think anybody was terribly surprised by that observation from the government. I don't think anybody thought that our three to two debt to equity funded assets test was really out of kilter with a 30% of EBITDA test. But for some reason, the government has decided that they want to do it the OECD way based on revenue and based on the income statement rather than the balance sheet. As we will see, that creates a whole bunch of problems that a balance sheet test doesn't give you. There are reasons why a balance sheet test is sensible. Now, maybe we haven't done it as well as we could. Maybe it could have been tweaked. Maybe the ratios aren't right. But it does solve a lot of the problems that this test is going to throw up if the government goes ahead with this proposal in this manner. So there's a lot of history to get us here, but it seems pretty clear the government is firmly committed to this. And so it's going to go ahead in some form. That is one of the questions I was going to ask, Graham, but the government has stated that it was an election commitment and they want to proceed with this. There was a period of only a month between the release of the consultation paper and when submissions close and the federal budget is due to be handed down at the end of October. How advanced do you think the government's thinking is on this? Are they really looking for consultation or is it pretty much better down and they're just going to be tweaking at the edges? Yes, I I think, Toby, you'd have to say this is a done deal. If you think about the policy or the positioning in relation to tax policy that the ALP took to the 2022 election, it was pretty much we're not going to change the domestic rules. So the stage three tax cuts, they're going to survive. We're not going to tinker with super too much. Nothing is going to frighten the horses here, except in relation to multinationals. So if the government is desperate for revenue, and I suspect are, then this is the one area where they have said, we are going to go for it. So I think the combination of the government's need for revenue, their 
promise not to touch domestic taxpayers and the promise to go after multinational enterprises guarantees that this is going to happen. It may not be done and dusted quickly, but it's going to happen. Something is going to happen in this space, and it'll be modelled on this OECD version of a thin cap. So there's 18 questions in the consultation paper just on the thin capitalisation issues alone. We probably should point out that they are changing just the safe harbour test at this stage, but it is available for multinational enterprises to utilise either of the arm's length debt test or the worldwide gearing ratio. Those are still intended to be available, although the questions that are raised in the paper do raise issues as to whether there might be some tweaking around both of those models as well. So let's dig into some of the issues. Perhaps first off, a threshold question as to a day minimus threshold. Currently, it's set at $2 million. There's a question as to whether that is appropriate. I've seen one submission stating that should be raised to $10 million. That's perhaps wishful thinking. Your thoughts, Graham? I think there'll be a, a de minimis test here, Toby, and my suspicion is they won't be enthusiastic about increasing it. You do need to focus on the areas where you have real concern. And frankly, debt deductions under $2 million are a rounding error for a lot of multinationals. So I, I'm pretty confident there will be a, a de minimis threshold. Whether it'll get nudged up a bit, maybe part of the negotiations to try to stop some of the squealing from some of the affected taxpayers at the smaller end of the multinational scale. Yeah. So I guess the biggest threshold issue, Graham, is that where you have a large project or you're a startup entity, you are generally incurring losses early days. And so one of the questions that isn't answered is there will be an ability to carry forward unutilised debt deductions, or whether there might be some possibility to carry back excess deductions in the event that, for example, there's a hit to earnings one year, or there's a restructure and there's a, a bunch of costs that impact that EBITDA. That seems to be a fairly critical issue as to the design and usefulness of this safe harbour. Yes, I, I think that's right. This is one that Treasury kind of skirts around And that's because the OECD BEPS Action 4 paper just talks about this problem in pretty general terms and doesn't give a firm indication or a firm recommendation to the effect that if you're going to go with a revenue-based test, you have to have this as part of the architecture of the rules. But if you think about it, there are just too many scenarios where in any particular year, a taxpayer is likely to find that they are going to fail the test, that their expenses on debt deductions is going to be more than 30% of EBITDA. It, interest rates may go up, didn't plan for it, just happened unexpectedly. Your commodity prices might go down. The bottom falls out of the market for pork bellies. You're doing a restructure. You're a, a an entity involved in extraction or your involved in some kind of infrastructure project with a long lead time. There's just too many scenarios where taxpayers are going in a particular year to fail this test. You don't have that problem with 
a balance sheet based test. Your balance sheet is a lot more stable than your income statement because asset values don't tend to move quite so dramatically or quite so obviously from year to year. And so there will have to be a solution for these kinds of taxpayers who, through no fault of their own, find themselves having fallen outside the safe harbor. Now, you were right, Toby, to say, because the safe harbor is only one of the three tests, and there are two other tests, one of the preoccupations in the paper is, oh dear, if we make the safe harbor too hard to get into, is that just going to force everybody into using the arm's length debt test instead? And the clear impression you get from the paper is Treasury knows if a million taxpayers move from the safe harbor into the arm's length debt test, the ATO is just going to collapse under the weight of the effort. It's just going to be a worse outcome if everybody is suddenly saying, well, here's my transfer pricing documentation, Commissioner. And that's why I'm continuing to deduct my debt deductions, even though I'm not in the safe harbor anymore. So I think Treasury will have to manage that tension. If they make this 30% of EBITDA test without any kind of recognition of fluctuating revenues or expenses, if they don't have carry forward mechanisms, people are just going to go to arm's length debt test. Taxpayers won't want it. And I'm sure the ATO does not want that. That won't be a better world after this project has been bettered down. Yes. And from experience, satisfying the arms like debt test is not a straightforward process. There's a number of assumptions that need to be built into the modelling and the report, and it's a painful exercise for all concerned. I guess there are two carve-outs. One is there does seem to be some appetite for allowing higher gearing of assets or projects that provide net public benefits or are considered nationally significant. No indication exactly what those will be, but hopefully there'll be some more detail at some point. The other carve out is for ADIs and financial institutions, which will effectively be grandfathered into the current asset based test where they're allowed to gear at a ratio of 20 to 1, which I'm sure will be music to their ears. Yes, I think that's right, Toby, and you've adverted to an important part of the story. This looks like a really major change, and it is a major change for inbound and outbound general commercial taxpayers who rely on the safe harbour. But those are two divisions out of about 14 divisions in the legislation. A lot of the legislation after this proposal has been bedded down, I suspect is still going to look and feel and taste and smell pretty much the same, certainly for financial institutions for ADIs and non-bank financial institutions, the rules are going to stay the same. At the moment, it looks like arm's length debt test is going to stay the same. At the moment, it looks like worldwide gearing test may stay the same. So we're just tweaking how the safe harbour is defined. Now, the tweak is significant because most taxpayers rely on the safe harbour, but there'll be a lot of people particularly in the financial sector, securitization vehicles and those kinds of things who will end up not being affected by these changes. Yeah, I think the the only other two points, there is no discussion in the paper on the interaction of the denial of deductions and interest withholding tax. The local payer will have to remit interest withholding tax when it pays the interest, but it may come at the end of the year, total up its earnings for the year and realise it may be denied deductions in respect of some of those interest payments. And finally, the start date and whether there's going to be any transition. The 
announcements to date have indicated that the start date will be from 1 July 2023, and that is the expectation of what will be in this year's federal budget. But there is a question as to how long it will take for projects that have got long lives and have put in place financing based on the current rules, how they're going to potentially unwind and refinance those. I think there will certainly be a lot of pressure on Treasury in relation to the grandfathering of existing projects and how to transition projects that are being planned into the new system. Just how Treasury handles that will be interesting to see, but I suspect there will have to be some movement in that space. It's a bit like the discussion of carry forwards and carry backs. There are too many people with too much money already invested. You can't just say to those people, oh, sorry, we've changed the rules from underneath you. I don't get the sense that the government would have any for that. The other point you mentioned about the interaction between the interest withholding tax imposed on the foreigner and the non-deduction imposed on the Australian payer is a problem that exists already in our system. We typically don't try to adjust the position of the non-resident for the position of the resident. And so it's when our existing thin cap rules bite, we find that effectively the tax rate is 40%. Uh, So you're denying a deduction at 30%. You're collecting that from the payer. You're still imposing withholding tax, if it is a withholding tax scenario, on the non-resident recipient. So we're getting 40%. Now, our policy settings are meant to be that we want 30% tax from non-residents who might be investing in Australia in equity-structured investments, and that's what FinCap rules are trying to replicate. We want 30, we don't want 40, but we don't solve that problem at the moment. And I suspect it's unlikely that we will solve that problem in the new version of the thin capitalization rules. The one exception where we do try to adjust the position of the foreigner for what happened to the Australian is if you're in transfer pricing land. So the rules in our transfer pricing regime in Division 815B do allow an adjustment to the withholding tax for the treatment of the payer. But that rule's not in play when we're talking about thin capitalisation. So I suspect Treasury will just say, yeah, this is one of the consequences of exceeding that ratio. Not only have we denied the deduction, we've also still collected the withholding tax and that makes the tax rate a lot higher than it ought to be. Yes, it's an interesting point because the discussion paper refers to these proposals as a measure or as a means to level the playing field for Australian businesses. And that that probably leads well into the second item for discussion on the treatment of royalties. So the proposal is to deny Australian companies paying a royalty to non-residents where that royalty is not subject to sufficient tax in the recipient's jurisdiction. And again, the same issue arises as to there's royalty withholding tax that will be imposed. And if you're going to deny a deduction uh, as well, then that is certainly going to increase the effective tax rate on that royalty. Going into a bit more detail, the paper acknowledges that 
there's a number of rules in place that deal with royalties, certainly transfer pricing and part for a and there's been some recent taxpayer alerts involving royalties. Nevertheless, the paper considers that they need a specific measure targeting the integrity issues associated with intangibles and royalties. And the paper seeks submissions on four key aspects of the design of the new rules. Firstly, whether it applies to cross-border payments made by all multinational enterprises or only those which are also significant global entities defined under the diverted profits tax of having a group turnover of more than a billion dollars. The second point is how you define royalties for this purpose, whether you're using the current definition in the tax legislation or whether it should be covering also embedded royalties. Uh, so that's part of payments for services. Third point is uh, whether you deny the deduction for payments to all offshore entities or only to related entities. And finally, what tests should be used to determine whether the recipient is subject to sufficient tax? So there is a lot of issues to unpack there. Which one do you want to go first with, Graham? The killer test is going to be how do we define a royalty for the purposes of these rules? So the legislation at the moment includes some payments for services, but not many. It doesn't really include payments for the sale of goods where those goods have got technology behind them, but it's pretty straightforward for the purposes of royalty withholding tax. You get the flavour, you get the sense from the Treasury paper that they don't like that test. They don't think it's ambitious enough. They want to go after more payments leaving Australia, which involve what they call an embedded royalty. Now, if you think about that, if they're really ambitious, that is just going to be a nightmare. I'm an Australian taxpayer. I decide I'm going to buy myself a piece of imported machinery and I get it sent to me from the German supplier. Are they really going to say that the piece of machinery that I just paid for involves an embedded royalty that I am paying to the German manufacturer? There will be technology involved in this. The goods will be the product of technology that's been developed by the German company over years. There'll be a bunch of patents floating around somewhere. Are they really going to say, I'm sorry, 30% of the price that you paid to the German was for an embedded royalty, so no deduction for you? That would be just remarkable. So this issue about embedded royalties when you are paying for what you would think of as services. I want you to write me a report that outlines the results of your satellite-based imaging to tell me where you think the mineral is located. Am I paying for a service or am I paying an embedded royalty? When I buy the German equipment, am I paying for goods or am I paying an embedded royalty? That borderline between royalty, goods, services, or even part sales of the technology is going to be very difficult to draw. I don't think Treasury really appreciates just how ambitious this would be. The second thing to notice about that bit of the story, Toby, is that they, they also want to look upstream. So if I happen to pay the German manufacturer a price for the goods that they've sent to me, but behind the German manufacturer, it's paying a royalty to somebody else, they want to say, because the German paid the foreigner a royalty, we are going to treat some of what you paid to the German as a royalty. 
This notion of upstream royalties as well as embedded royalties gets discussed in the paper. And again, I think that is just going to be a minefield for for people who are trying to make these rules work. I think you'd have to basically do a whole mapping exercise of all payments that are going out, um, particularly if it's going out to third party as opposed to related party entities. That just seems an incredibly difficult task. Yeah, so I think that's where they will try to wind back the ambition of the proposals. Let's take out a whole bunch of buyers. Let's limit this just to significant global entities. Let's take out a whole bunch of recipients. They've got to be connected to our group or the upstream royalty has got to be within the same group as well. And then let's see if we can find some way to decide which jurisdictions cause us concern, either as the immediate recipient jurisdiction or the ultimate recipient jurisdiction, can we come up with a test that will narrow down what looks like a pretty ambitious scope here? Yeah, certainly in the election policy documents when they were released, it seemed to be aimed more at anti-avoidance arrangements so that there was a clear abuse going on, but that doesn't seem to be there anymore. It just seems to be almost self-executing rule that if there is a royalty paid to a low-tax recipient, that will automatically be triggered as opposed to requiring some anti-avoidance intent. The other thing that will be key is determining what the low-tax rate actually is. And whilst it may be clear when it's a payment is made to a country which Australia doesn't have a double tax treaty with, so it's going to a very low tax jurisdiction or a zero tax jurisdiction, that may be clear. But there is indication that jurisdictions with the patent box regime may be caught as well, which doesn't augur well for the prior government's announcement to introduce a patent box regime into Australia. It would seem fairly odd that we would introduce a new regime but penalise other countries which have a similar regime. My way of thinking, this may be one of the bits of the puzzle that Treasury will have to abandon. Is Australia really going to say to the UK, to Germany, look, I know your patent box regime is compliant with BEPS Action 5. We've said that we will respect those kinds of things. But actually, sorry, we've changed our mind. Even though your patent box is BEPS Action 5 compliant. Nevertheless, because the recipient isn't paying a high enough tax rate, we're going to go after the Australian payer and deny them a deduction, in effect, turning off the benefit of the German or UK patent box rules by going after the Australian payer. I will be very surprised if the policy doesn't end up being tweaked in such a way that patent box regimes, which are BEPS Action 5 compliant, don't end up falling outside. Now, it may not be written up in in headlights, but I suspect have to be there. And one way to do that is through this sufficient foreign tax test. So if you think about the integrity rule for interest going offshore to low tax jurisdictions, we've said if the interest ends up not being taxed at 10%, then we think that's insufficient tax. My suspicion is we will pick a number for patents that is a pretty low number. So unless the patent income is 
in effect exempt from tax or so close to exempt that it doesn't matter, then these rules won't bite. And so a lot of patent box regimes would end up surviving and we haven't picked a fight with Germany, the UK and so on. They are subject to sufficient tax rules. It's not just focused on the rate in that country. It can be impacted by other items such as R&D tax credits, etc. that have the effect of lowering the tax rate on that income. Yeah, so there are plenty of options for Treasury to choose from in deciding what test they want to use in concluding that the foreigner isn't subject to sufficient tax. But as you say, which one they settle on, there will be more or less complexity associated with calculating the amount of foreign tax, depending upon which one of the existing tests they come up with. Uh, they may even decide they're going to come up with an entirely new one just for this purpose. Indeed. The last thing I mentioned, it, I found it somewhat surprising that there was no mention of the interaction that this rule would have if Pillar 2 of the OECD's proposals were to be enacted, which it would look to impose a global minimum tax of 15% on multinational enterprises. To my basic way of thinking, when Pillar 2 comes in to effect, that to a large degree would solve Treasury's concerns that there is insufficient tax being paid on this income and that somehow Australian businesses are disadvantaged as compared to multinational enterprises. But there doesn't seem to be any proposal to switch this rule off in the event that Pillar 2 gets enacted. No, and that may be simply because it will get enacted. It will operate for two or three years until Pillar 2 starts to bite, assuming it does eventually get legislated. And then at that point, it just becomes irrelevant. It will cease to be triggered for the Australian payer because Pillar 2 will have ensured that every foreign recipient in a country that participates in the inclusive framework will be subject to sufficient foreign tax. So the Australian rule won't bite on the Australian payer anymore. I can see this as a temporary measure, but you're right, Toby, you would think once Pillar 2 comes in, this thing just becomes a piece of unnecessary detritus in the legislation. Yes, indeed. Unless, of course, they set the Minimum effective tax rate above 15%, which I think is at least floated at one point in the paper. Graham, we've been talking for 50 minutes now, which is perhaps a lot longer than we initially thought of about 20. So that might have to do it for now. But no doubt we'll pick this up again when legislation is ultimately released. But any closing thoughts, Graham? No, watch this space, Toby. It will happen. And it will happen relatively quickly, I think. All the signs are Treasury wants to move this along. The government is certainly keen. And given that there won't be a lot of changes to domestic tax legislation, this one will be pretty soon in the list of things that Treasury will want to get done. Thanks, Graham. There's plenty to read and keep up with. On that note, thank you, Graham. Really appreciate your insights. Thanks, Toby. And listeners, we will be back next month with another exciting update on what's happening in the Australian tax world. But for now, thank you and goodbye.